Turn with me in your Bible to Acts chapter 18, the book of Acts chapter 18. We are making our way through this incredible book in the New Testament. I'm so thankful for the book of Acts being in our Bible so we can better understand the birth of the early church in those early decades after the resurrection of Jesus. Turn with me to Acts chapter 18. I'm actually going to start at the tail end of 17. If you remember last week, we concluded Paul's time in the city of Athens, Greece, and he speaks to the intellectual elites there, and he does get a small, uh, a few people are converted, and then he leaves and heads to Corinth. So, Acts chapter 17, I'm going to start in verse 32, read through chapter 18, verse 11. Acts 17, 32, this is the Word of the Lord. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So, Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the Word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent from now on. I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named, uh, a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the Word of God among them. Now, this is the Word of the Lord, and I'm, I'm actually not going to cover verses 9 through 11 much today. I will mainly just cover verses 1 through 8 uh, of our text. Um, let me try to give a quick picture of what's happening here. So, we, we've probably all heard of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, right? Those are very famous letters in the New Testament. They're long letters. You have, what is, I think it's 16 chapters and 13 chapters, so a lot of material. I don't know of any church in the New Testament that we have more material about than the Corinthian church. Uh, this church, Paul had to deal with the good and, can we say, the bad with the Corinthian church. This is a mixed group of… of there was a lot of good, but there's also a lot of challenges. And the challenges begin right off the start. So, we're going to be looking today, really, at the uh, challenging beginnings of the Corinthian church the challenging beginnings of the Corinthian church, and I've got three points of challenge, three challenges, and then three uh, encouragements. So, I'll have six points to the message today. Uh, we have three points of challenge and three points uh, of encouragement. First off, uh, let's look again here. Paul finishes his address in Athens, and you have basically three responses to his gospel presentation. Some people mock him. Other people say, We'll hear him again about this. We'll, we'll hear him again. And then others began to follow Paul and were converted. 
Uh, among them was this guy named Dionysius the Areopagite. This was one of the guys from that elite group of the Areopagites. One of those guys was converted, which is pretty amazing, and a woman and some others with them. And so there was a little bit of fruit, but Paul moves on soon after Athens and heads about 37 miles uh, over to the city of Corinth. Now, uh, Corinth was uh, infamous for a lot of things, and uh, it, uh, one, the first challenge that, was, that you see here is Corinthian culture was highly immoral. Uh, people say, you know, it was kind of like the Las Vegas of its time period. Las Vegas, at, you know, it's called Sin City. It's known for, for its immorality. It's sort of famous for that. Well, the city of Corinth was right there. Uh, it was right there on a port, but you, you remember what an isthmus is, right? It's a little tiny narrow stretch of land, like a neck of land that connects two larger bodies. And uh, Corinth was right there at this isthmus that connected uh, the mainland of Greece with the Peloponnesian Peninsula, which is right below it. And there was, if you were traveling by boat, if you were going to travel from Rome uh, over to, say, Egypt or to Israel or to wherever you might go, Ephesus, you had to travel, and you had a couple options. One was you could travel right up to the Corinthian uh, area, and you could, you could take all your materials, all that was on your boat, and believe me, this sounds unbelievable, but there was no peninsula at the, at the time there, and so they would take all their cargo out of the… Uh, excuse me, there was no, there was no uh, a place for you to actually take your boat through, a channel for your boat to go through. So they would unload all their cargo, and a lot of times they would actually take the boat itself, and they would load it up, and there was about a four-foot-wide area with a, a four-mile stretch of road across this neck, or this isthmus, and they would actually put the boats on that, and they would push the boats on these little, uh, little rivets in the road four miles to the other side of the sea, and then they would put the boat back in the water, put all the cargo back on, that's exhausting because your only other option was to go about 200 extra miles around the Peloponnesian Peninsula. So to save time, you would just kind of go across this isthmus, and so guess what? Corinth is sitting right there. So do you think this is going to affect the city of Corinth? Oh my goodness. This is why there was so much trade in the city. Corinth was famous for its Corinthian bronze. Josephus tells us about the temple in Israel. It had massive gates, the beautiful gate made of giant Corinthian bronze. It was known for its trade. It was known for its good economy. I mean, think about this. You have all these ships coming through all the time, all day, every day, and they're docking outside. Some people would unload their cargo, and their boat would go with few crew around the entire uh, peninsula, 200 plus miles. They would come back and pick everyone up on the other side. The point is, You've got a lot of time if you're at Corinth. You've got a lot of time to deal with while you're trying to unload and load and deal with all your cargo. And so Corinth becomes an infamous port city. Another thing that port cities are famous for is their immorality. Uh, there's this anonymity. You're, you're, you're in a place where no one knows you. You think you can get away with a lot more. Uh, also, inside the city of Corinth, there were many temples. Uh, there was a temple up on top of the mountain there in Corinth, uh, and uh, they would have one… Now, I grant you, this is probably exaggerated, but at least in the old Corinth, before uh, this city was, was rebuilt, they, one author said that there were a thousand temple prostitutes who worked up on this mountain uh, during the day, and that they would come down, many of them women, but not all of them, they would come down into the city at night, and they would, they would work prostitution. Now, even if the number a thousand was vastly an exaggeration, uh, 200 doesn't sound a lot better, does it? So, you, you, have this, you have rampant prostitution in the city of Corinth. Doesn't that make sense when you're reading 1 Corinthians? Paul says, whoever's united with a prostitute becomes one with them, therefore flee sexual morality. You know, you're joined to the Lord, don't join yourself to a prostitute. Paul has to address prostitution because that was what the city was often known for. Also, right next to Corinth was, uh, you know, it's the Isthmus. We had the Isthmian Games. Have you heard of the Isthmian Games? They were second only to the Olympic Games of the time, the Olympic Games just like today, were every four years. 
The Isthmian Games were every two years, and Corinth was the main host city of the Isthmian Games. It happened right east of the, right next to their city. So you had enormous amounts of people would come every two years to the city of Corinth, and they would spend time there. So you had um, immorality, idolatry, temples. Also, remember Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, in a race, all the runners run, but only one reached the prize, so run in such a way that you might obtain. He's playing on the idea of the Isthmian Games that took place right there in the city of Corinth, uh, and on you could go. So, the first challenge is the city itself, and here's something that's kind of amazing to think about. You know, oftentimes the people who understand the gospel of Jesus fastest, most quickly comprehend the issue of grace and forgiveness are those who have had a, a broken past, a, a, a really sinful, immoral past. It is the woman at the well who immediately begins to grasp who Jesus is. With her five failed marriages and her now she's living with a man she's not married to, she grasps the person of Christ and is saved on the spot, one conversation. And then there's Nicodemus, right, in John 3 that we're just looking at at the beginning of the service, John 3. Nicodemus, it takes him longer to understand Jesus. Why? He's so religious. He's so moral. He thinks he's so much better than other people. He thinks he can really earn his right relationship with God. He doesn't get it right away. It takes him time. But this broken woman with a broken past in John 4, the woman at the well, she grasped grace immediately. So, although this is a challenge, the immorality of Corinth, do you see how it could also be an open door to the gospel of free grace? I mean, think about this. Paul shows up and says, I have a message that every sin you have ever committed against the God who made you can be entirely blotted out and forgiven past, present, and future, all your guilt wiped away, all, your, all those moments where you stand thinking, how could I have? All of that can be wiped out in a moment by the blood of the Son of God who shed His blood for you, paying the price to God's holiness and justice that we deserve to pay, to be buried, truly embracing death for us, then to be raised triumphant, exalted to God, and offering forgiveness. How attractive could that be to someone who's visited those temple prostitutes? How how attractive could that be to someone who had lived in a moral life? In fact, Paul himself will say uh, in 1 Corinthians, he'll say these words. Just listen to this. This is is a wonderfully… It's both tough and encouraging. Listen to these words. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, "'Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God?' That's the tough part. Those who live an ungodly life do not inherit the kingdom. Well, then where's the hope for any of us? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And you just stop there, and that's devastating. Who in this room is not guilty on that list? If you're not guilty of any of those things, I would like to meet you because that's astonishing. We are all guilty by that list, right? And then Paul adds these words to the Corinthians, this this city. He speaks to these Christians now in Corinth who've now been converted. He says, and such were some of you. That list is the Corinthians. That's who they were before Christ. And then he says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, declared righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So, if you have a Corinthian past, I mean, there was a Greek word, I'm going to, I don't do well pronouncing Greek words. The Greek word was something like Corinthianestai, 
Corinthianestai, which is a Greek word that says to play the Corinthian, to be a Corinthian, which literally means to be sexually immoral, to be a prostitute, to be a Corinthian. That was an actual slang term used to, 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 to discredit someone's reputation. And the gospel shows up in this city and triumphs. The gospel of Christ can triumph with those with a sinful past. If, if you're here today and you say, I'm, I'm not necessarily a Christian, I don't know if I would call myself that, but I've got wreckage in my past. I've got embarrassing things in my past, stuff that is shameful, that not many people know about. Let me tell you, you came to the right place because the good news of the gospel is that the bad news of your sin can be beaten. The bad news of your sin can be triumphed over. God's justice and judgment that He owes you does not have to be taken by you because His Son took it for sinners. And He offers that salvation to all who will turn and entrust themselves to Him. So that although it is a challenge, the immorality of Corinth, it is also a triumph for the gospel. So that's the first challenge. The second challenge I would like to mention, now we don't tend to think of Paul as a real human being. Can we grant that? He always seems like he should be wearing the Superman cape at all times, just bullets bounce off this guy. He seems untouchable. It's just, you know, he's in prison singing. You're like, I don't think I would be, but okay, I, I would like to think I would. But so the Apostle Paul, I want to tell you, he was a godly man. I think the most godly man in church history after the apostles. But he was human. He, he was not absolutely sinless. And I, I think he was also prone at times to discouragement. And I think that when he comes to Corinth, I think he is at a place of real discouragement and fear. And you say, well, how do you know that? Let me read to you some words. Don't have to turn there. 1 Corinthians 2, writing to those Corinthians later, he says, verse 1, and, and I, when I came to you, brothers. So Paul's going to tell us what he was like when he showed up at Corinth. This is Paul's inside look. Like if we could read his journal entry for the day, this is what he was feeling. This is what he was saying. For when I came to you, brothers, Corinthians, did it, uh, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's the good news. And I, and uh, when I was with you, I was there in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. Now, do you hear his journal entry for his first day at Corinth? I was feeling weak. Paul, weak? Yes. That was the secret to his strength. When I am weak, then I am strong, right? So, Paul shows up weak, afraid, fearful, and trembling. And you say, why? Well, if you've been here the last couple months, we've seen, right, his second missionary journey, he left, he left Antioch in Syria, he went into the Galatian churches and ministered there where he had recently been stoned nearly to death in Lystra. Why would you go back, right? Paul goes back. It's me again, the guy you almost killed. Here I am. So he's back at Lystra. He meets up with Timothy, right? He's got his friends. He heads on, and he heads up, and he, he wants to go into Asia Minor. The Spirit of Jesus won't let him. One plan is foot. He goes north. He wants to go up to Pontus, Bithynia area. The Spirit of Christ will not let him. He has nowhere to go. He's stuck in this no-man's land. He has to keep traveling. They travel over several hundred miles. They end up on a port city. He gets a vision to go to Philippi, and he gets a few converts. That's wonderful. Lydia is converted, but what happens? He gets, he gets really discredited by a lie, thrown in prison, beaten, left in stocks. He's singing at midnight. He gets out. 
jailer's converted. He heads to Thessalonica. What happens at Thessalonica? The, most of the Jewish people there chase him out of the city. They want him to be killed. He runs to Berea. And you think, okay, now in Berea, they got the Bereans. They're searching their scriptures. They're loving the Bible. They're, they're, they're being converted. But what happens? Paul's there for just a little while. And the, the Jewish group from Thessalonica travels that journey 45 miles to Berea. And what do they do? They whip up the crowds and they try to kill Paul all over again. They have to take Paul. You remember, whenever Paul shows up, there's usually a revival and a riot simultaneously, okay? So when, when Paul, they, they have to take Paul, like, Paul, okay, Timothy can stay here, okay? Silas can stay here. Paul, you, you got to go. So they throw Paul on a boat, and they send Paul uh, down to Athens, Greece. Paul shows up in Athens, and he's there ministering, but there's, looks like, a, not a huge group of converts there. And now he heads to Corinth into this immoral city, and he knows he's going to face similar kinds of persecution. Paul shows up, what, weak, afraid, and trembling because he knows. And even Acts 18 says, look at verse 9, the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid. Now, when do you have to tell your children, do not be afraid? When they are afraid, <laughs> right? What, what, is the, what do the angels always say? And the first thing out of an angel's mouth, you know, a 20-foot person shining like lightning appears in your bedroom. You're like, Mary, you know, you're going to have a baby. This is terrifying. <laughs> like, when, you, when an angel shows up, what is the first thing every angel says? Do not be afraid. Fear not. But why? Because there's a, there's a reason to be afraid. You think there's a reason to be afraid. Why does Jesus say to Paul in a vision in Corinth, don't be afraid? Because Paul says himself, he was there in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. He, he was there with some fear, and the Lord has to come to give him encouragement, to, to come bolster uh, his, his strength in that moment. Look at the third challenge here, and this isn't directly, this is more, not directly about Paul, but this, this wonderful couple. So let's look back at chapter 18. I'll read the first couple verses. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, that's about 37 miles, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius, that's the emperor, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. Now, pause that. That's the only time in the Bible that I know of that we're told what Paul did outside of preaching for a living. He made tents. He was a leather worker. We'll talk about that in a moment. But here's the other challenge. How did Aquila and Priscilla wind up in Corinth? This was not by some grand plan of their own. Do you see what happened? The emperor, Claudius, a wonderful man, not really, Claudius, he just makes a declaration. I, I can't stand the Jews being in Rome anymore. The, I want them out of the capital city. So he just makes a pronouncement, every Jew out of Rome. And so they have to flee from their home. And if you track Aquila and Priscilla, we'll talk about them next Sunday, Lord willing, and maybe the Sunday after that, if you track them through the New Testament, you'll find out that they're, well, they're clearly from Rome, but by the time you get to Romans, they're back in Rome after this edict has been taken away. They're back in Rome, and they've got a house church. They're hosting a church in their home, Aquila and Priscilla. So no doubt they were part of the church in Rome, and no doubt they were already converted before they met Paul. I think, that, I think that's pretty obvious here. Their conversion is not mentioned in this text. I think they were converted earlier. But here's the part that I think is just massively we can relate to. The emperor says, you need to leave. Now, let me just back up this with, with another historical comment. There's a, there's a Roman historian, Suetonius, Suetonius, I think is how you pronounce it. He was writing around the year A.D. 115, so about 70 years later or so, and he wrote a big biography of Claudius the emperor called The Life of Claudius. And in chapter 25, verse 4, I don't know if they call them verses, but chapter 25, verse 4, uh, this is what Suetonius says, a very famous quote from his works. You can look it up if you want. Claudius banished from Rome all the Jews who were continually making disturbances at the instigation of one 
Crestus. This is a fascinating quote from a non-Christian historian, okay, from 115 AD. What, is, what does this historian say? So, Suetonius says, okay, he agrees with the Bible. Claudius kicked the Jews out of Rome, but he gives a detail that's not in the text of the Bible. What's the reason? He kicked the Jews out of Rome because of a disturbance over at the instigation of one Crestus. Now, Crestus, most scholars believe, this is a slight guess, but I think it is likely true. Most scholars believe that he is referring here with, one, with a misspelling of the word Christ. He, he is probably confused. What probably happened to the Jews in Rome is the same thing that keeps happening when Paul speaks to the Jews in every other city. What happens? They preach Christ, Jesus, and what happens? Some of the Jews believe and some violently disagree, right? That's what's been happening in all these cities. Well, no doubt, apart from Paul, when the Christians got to Rome, not Paul, other Christians from Pentecost when they got sent out there, they preached Christ, and some Jews were converted, like Aquila and Priscilla, and some Jews were not and were vehemently opposed to Christ. And so, there was probably so much tumult in the city, kind of like with Paul being around, there was so much fighting between the Jewish Christians and the non the, the, the Christian Jews and the non-Christian Jews at Christus, right, at the name of Christ, that Claudius says, I've had enough of this, all of you out. And so very likely, Christus is a reference to Christ here, and they were, they were having a fight over that, and they were kicked out of the city. Now, Priscilla and Aquila do not want to leave Rome. That is where their home is. After the, 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 the ban is gone, where do they go? They go, according to Romans 16, they go back to Rome. That's where they want to be. That's their home is Rome. They, uh, they even had a house church. Now listen, they're forced out of their home forced out of their country. They leave Italy, and they head, and they end up at this port city, and they just go, I guess we'll try to make it here for a while, and they spend several years, several years. We don't know how many, but maybe four, five, six years in Corinth. Now, have you ever been in a place in life where you're in a new place? If, if you're college freshman right now, you're in a new place right now, maybe this is a direct, direct application, but have you ever been in a completely new place, or a place you do not necessarily want to be, and, and maybe a, a situation in life you do not want to be in, and suddenly, by God's providence, you are in a place that you do not necessarily want to be. This was not your plan A, B, C, or D. This was like plan Z. I hope it never happens, and here I am. By God's providence, I am in a particular spot in life I don't necessarily want to be. That's where Aquila and Priscilla were. They show up in Corinth. Listen, when they get there, there is no church there, not until Paul shows up. They're going to the synagogue, probably trying to convert Jewish friends there in that new synagogue, and then the apostle Paul shows up. So they are forced to leave their home. They are perhaps disoriented, and yet they are having to trust that God has a good purpose for this confusing, disorienting moment in their life, and that God is working in it for their good, even when they do not see why this has happened to them. Can you see how that would be a struggle? So those are the three challenges. Let's look at the three uh, encouragements here. First encouragement, I'm going to read verses 2 through 4 again, is Paul and Aquila and Priscilla all meet each other, and they are encouraged by each other. So again, verse 2, and he, Paul, found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Number one, he is meeting new Christian friends. Is it not a delight when you meet a Christian who you've never seen before and you begin talking about the things of the Lord in about five minutes? 
You feel closer to that person than you do to some of your unbelieving friends you may have grown up with or relatives who are not believers. You, you, you feel like this kinship of spirit with these new believing friends. And what a blessing it is, what an encouragement it is when we are downcast to meet new Christian friends and new Christian community and to begin to get to know them, sinking our roots deep into them and to get to know them better and to be encouraged by each other. But secondly, so first of all, you've got this, this new friendship, but secondly, there's also uh, hospitality going on. Aquila and Priscilla invite, invite Paul basically to live with them, to work with them, and so that they have open arms to them, and how, how much of a blessing this can be to open up our lives to other Christians, especially those in need. But then the third thing that is encouraging here to, uh, to Paul is that uh, they, they work the same job, that they're working the same uh, job. Let me, let me get you to turn. Hold your spot here and flip to the right to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Later, he will write to the Corinthians… 1 Corinthians chapter 9, a couple, uh, a couple books to the right there. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And here is Paul, because if you'll notice here, Paul is working for a living. I mean, that may seem strange, does it not? The Apostle Paul is not full-time ministry right now. He's actually bivocational. Uh, he is working, making tents during the week, and on the Saturdays, he goes into the Jewish synagogue and he preaches the gospel to the Jews there. But he's ma- most of the week, he is actually working, like hard manual labor. First Corinthians 9, he explains some of the reason why he, did not, he didn't ask. Now, th- think about this. As soon as the Corinthians start becoming Christians, who could, he a- who could he have asked to support him financially? The Corinthians, which would not have been a sin. But Paul says why he did not ask the Corinthians to help him financially at first. Uh, ver- I'm going to read a long section here. First Corinthians 9, verse 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If it is to others I am uh, not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of, of the Lord and of Cephas, that's Peter? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Just pause here. You're like, wait, what's going on with the oxen? So when when oxen are treading out grain, you could muzzle the oxen so it would not eat any of the food it was treading out itself. But that was kind of cruel. So you would take the muzzle off so that the oxen can eat the fruit of its own labor. And similarly, those who work in ministry, some of us in this room work in full-time ministry in different ways or bivocationally, uh, being able to get financial support by those whom we teach and help, that is completely biblical. Paul's defending that here, but look at verse 10. Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman who plow uh, in hope and the thresher should thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? So, pause. Paul's saying, I could have asked you for a paycheck, but I didn't. I had every right to ask you, Corinthians, to pay me, but I did not take advantage of that right. Why? Verse, middle of verse 12. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put a stumbling block in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. 
for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What, shall, what, what then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Now, do you see what Paul's saying? I had every right to ask you for money, but instead I chose to work perhaps six days a week, laboring by the sweat of my brow, making these tents for others, leatherworking, so that I could support myself so that you guys would not think I'm here and I'm in it for the money. I'm here doing this so that you will see it's not money that's motivating my ministry. I am here because I want to to show you that I've got good news to offer you. But in the meantime, if you can flip back to Acts chapter 18, we will also find out in just a moment that Paul was not against taking offerings from other churches he had already founded to help support him in his work, which we'll see in just a moment. Now, before I move on too quickly here, let me just say, get this very clear, the idea that there is spiritual there are spiritual jobs, and then there are secular, non-spiritual jobs, is just simply untrue. Uh, The Apostle Paul spent more days of the week when he got to Corinth doing a regular job, a blue-collar regular job working with his hands than he did his spiritual job, preaching in the synagogue. But Paul saw dignity in all of the above. And, And so, this is a very high view of common everyday work. There are ways in which when we work, we are part of the common grace of God, giving whatever it is we work and helping other people in various ways. We can help them through God's grace, but also at the same time in our work, we are able to minister to others, speak truth to others, say things that do encourage others, speak a word for Christ to others in a regular job. Don't ever think that your so-called regular job is less dignified than a so-called spiritual job. Paul is doing both of them in this passage and sees the glory of the Lord in all of it. So please, please hear that. Next, we'll move on here to another encouragement. So Paul was encouraged by Aquila and Priscilla. Now he is encouraged by Timothy and Silas showing up. Look at verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied, or in some translations, Paul became occupied in, with the Word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Now, the transla- translations, okay, I'm not going to get super boring on this, but let me just say something about the Greek here. Grammatically, the Greek could be translated one of two ways. It could either say, when Paul and Silas showed up, Paul was already devoted to the Word. It could also legitimately be translated, when when they showed up, Paul became fully devoted to the Word. And I think that he became fully devoted, which the NAS has and, and the NIV and some others, I think that's the more accurate translation because the point here is when Paul and Silas show up, they are, they're bringing very strong evidence, they're bringing a financial gift from the churches of Macedonia, and that frees Paul up so he doesn't have to work during the week. Now he can do ministry nonstop in terms of preaching. So now he's up seven days a week, he's fully devoted to the Word. So when Timothy and Silas show up, he gets to see old friends. One minister mentioned the old friend, new friend thing, I thought this was helpful. There is something wonderful about meeting new Christian friends, but isn't there something irreplaceable about being around old Christian friends of yours that you've, you've spent years and decades perhaps together, and, and you see each other maybe not as often as you'd like, but when you get together with Christian friends you've known for a long, long time, there is something so deep and so rich and so rewarding about those relationships that Paul is now doubly encouraged. He has new friends, Aquila and Priscilla, who are wonderful. He'll mention them in multiple of his letters. Even his last letter, his last paragraph he ever wrote, 2 Timothy 4, he mentions them, Aquila and Priscilla. They're on his mind as he approaches his martyrdom. And yet, here, older friends, Timothy and Silas show up and they encourage his heart. Hold your spot here again. Turn to the right to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, 
chapter 3. Now, if you're wondering about these kinds of things, I find this stuff interesting to see where Paul's letters intersect with the book of Acts. I personally have found this really interesting, to find where Paul's letters intersect with Acts. And um, where, so, 1 Thessalonians is written in Acts 18 between verses 5 and 6. It's just, I love knowing that kind of stuff. So, verse 5 is when Timothy and Silas show up, and that's exactly when Paul writes 1 Thessalonians. Timothy and Silas have just shown up. That's when he writes this letter back to those Thessalonian saints. And let me just read a few verses here about Paul's… Was he really encouraged when they showed, showed up? Yes, he was. 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 1. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you, Thessalonians, in your faith, that no one may be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for them. Verse 6, but now that Timothy has come to us from you… See, that's how we line it up with Acts 18. It's the same spot. Acts 18.5 is right there. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction here in Corinth, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before God, as we pray most earnestly, night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now, do you see the encouragement Paul just received? He was feeling weak, afraid. He was alone too. I didn't mention that. He was alone. And what happens? Old friends show up, and what do they have? Old friends with good news. The Thessalonians have not fallen away from the faith. Despite their persecutions, they are holding fast to Christ, and they can't wait to see you again, Paul. And Paul says, okay, now I'm really alive since you are standing fast in the Lord. Do you know what that is like to love? You know what Christian love is? Christian love means another person's spiritual well-being is connected to your happiness and joy, so that when they are growing, your joy goes with it. Like remember John, 2 John, verse 4, he says, I have no greater joy than this, that my children are walking in the truth. When your joy is connected to other people's spiritual well-being, that is biblical love. And Paul says, listen, I found out you Thessalonians are growing by leaps and bounds, so now I'm really alive. Now I really live because you are standing fast in the Lord. Spiritual love, true Christian love, fruit of the Spirit love, that is a love that is linking your joy in life with other people's well-being. You, you long for them to grow. It is your delight to see them grow. It is your grief to see them wander, to see them falling into sin, to see them going astray. It, it breaks your heart. It grieves you. It is your grief and joy attached to the spiritual well-being of those you love. That, by the way, that, that, that is the difference, by the way, between Christians and non-Christians. Non-Christians can love in some sort of, you know, I, I like you, I, I delight in you, I enjoy you kind of way, I enjoy your company kind of way. But non-Christians cannot say what? Now I truly live since you are standing fast in the Lord. A non-Christian does not say that. That's not true love. It's about the spiritual well-being of other people and their physical well-being, but, but particularly with their, with their spiritual well-being. Okay, you can turn back to Acts 18. So, you can see there the letter of 1 Thessalonians is written right there at the end of verse 5. And um, I won't make you turn to these. I'll just read them real quick. We're told Philippians 4.15, Paul says, and you Philippians, they're also up north near the Thessalonians. 
And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only, so they were giving him financial gifts. 2 Corinthians 11.9, similarly, Paul says, and when I was with you, Corinthians, when I was with you, and I was in need, right, he needed some financial support, I did not burden anyone. I didn't ask you guys to pay me. For the brothers who came from Macedonia, that would be Timothy and Silas most likely, supplied my need. So I, ref- so I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. So you see, Paul and Silas show up. They, they have the company of old friends. They bring good news about the Thessalonians' spiritual well-being, and they bring financial help from the Macedonian churches to help Paul. So now Paul can go full-time uh, into his preaching ministry. Okay, and the last encouragement, let me just, let me just re-say the outline so we can all be on the same page. Three challenges. Number one, the Corinthian culture was highly immoral. Number two, Paul arrives weak, afraid, and alone. Number three, Aquila and Priscilla are forced to leave their home in Rome. Those are all the challenges. The three encouragements. Number one, Paul is encouraged by Aquila and Priscilla, verses two to four. Next, Paul is encouraged by Timothy and Silas in verse five. And finally, Paul is encouraged by evangelistic fruit in verses seven and eight. But I'll start in verse six. Acts 18, verse 6. And when they opposed and reviled him, this is the, the, the Jewish people in the synagogue, when they opposed and reviled Paul, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. I'll just pause here for a moment. The challenges are still here. There's rejection again by the majority of the, the Jewish people in the synagogue. I, I, one pastor pointed out, I did find a little sense of humor in this. So, I mean, this is, a, this is an intense moment. He shakes out his garments. He says, your blood be on your own head. In other words, remember Ezekiel, the watchman? If a watchman is on the wall of a city, the watchman has a job. It's one job. And it's a job you cannot afford to fall asleep on the job. Watchman sits on the city day and night. They take shifts, right? Day and night, you have to have watchmen on the city. And what do they do? They're looking out over the wall to see if there is a threat, an approaching army, right? And the second they see the signs of a threat coming over the hill, they have one job. They see it, and they turn, and they, they cry out to everyone, danger, warning. There, there is an army coming. We must prepare for battle right now. And if the watchman falls asleep, and the army approaches the wall, and they get to the city, and no one is prepared for battle, the blood of the city rests on who? The watchman's hands, because he did not speak the truth when he should have. Okay, now to all of us who know the truth of the gospel, this is a massive weight. We see the justice of God against sin on the horizon. It is coming, and we know about it. As Christians, we believe it. We know it is true. We know we deserve it. And we have an obligation to turn to those in the city, unbelieving friends and family, and to tell them in love and grace and kindness and truth to say, there is a threat on the horizon. Our sins will find us out. God has made a way of atonement through Christ. We must turn and trust Him to be delivered. And if we give that warning, and tragically, sadly, it falls on deaf, ear, deaf ears at that moment, the blood is not on my hands anymore. The blood is now on the hands of those who've rejected the message. They chose to reject it. This is human responsibility. They heard the gospel, and many of them turned away from it. And Paul says, okay, from now on, I'm shaking the dust off. I am no longer guilty for you. I, I, my, your blood is not on me. Now your blood is on your own hands. It is your own responsibility. You heard the truth clearly for months, and now you have turned from it. 
And Paul says, now I'm turning to the Gentiles. He said, where's the humor in this? Well, okay, there's a little bit of humor here. So where does Paul go? He goes to this guy's house, Titius Justice, which is next door to the synagogue. <laughs> that makes me laugh a little bit. Okay. So Paul gives this dramatic warning, and he goes next door. <laughs> so I'm still here. If you want to hear the gospel, I am next door. So on your way to synagogue, if you want to stop by at our little church at the door right next to the synagogue, I will still preach Jesus to you if you want to hear it. So Paul makes a dramatic gesture and then goes right next door, and he's still preaching Jesus at the house right next to them. But here's the fruit, the encouragement that Paul saw, verse 8. Crispus, the ruler, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Now, that, that is an amazing text there. Do you see the, the name of the ruler of the synagogue is Crispus? Do you see that? i got to turn to one more place. Hold your spot. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Do you think that was an encouragement to Paul? The ruler of the synagogue is converted. His entire family is converted. This is a, an amazing moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, look with me down at verse 14. Paul confirming Acts with his own letter. 1 Corinthians 1, 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you except, there he is, the ruler of the synagogue, Crispus and Gaius, the, so that no one uh, may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Let me just take a moment here to say this. If, and my guess is somebody in the room this is going to be applicable to, if you have grown up in uh, a denomination or something that would call themselves a denomination where they say that baptism by water is a necessary prerequisite for being forgiven before God. That you ha all have heard this, right? You have to be water baptized and believe in Jesus to be saved. This verse doesn't make any sense. Paul says, I don't even remember who all I baptized in Corinth. I've actually forgotten. And he says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. In other words, if baptism was an essential component to being saved, do you think Paul would have remembered who he baptized? I think so. And do you think he would have divided baptizing and preaching the gospel? Would he have divided them? Christ didn't send me to baptize. He sent me to preach the gospel, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Well, you see here, Baptism, while it is a command of the Lord, and we, must, we should be baptized, it is a command of the Lord to be baptized if we're a believer, but do not ever buy the lie that water baptism is a necessary prerequisite for becoming right with God. It didn't, the thief on the cross was not water baptized. How would that have even worked? But that day, he was with Jesus in paradise. Water baptism is not necessary for salvation, but it is a command of the Lord. But you see there in Paul's letter, Crispus is mentioned. Turn with me back to Acts 18 as we wrap up here. John MacArthur, I heard his sermon from 1973 uh, when he preached this text. It was a great sermon. And uh, in the sermon, he tells this little story. So this is, this is young MacArthur, okay? This is like MacArthur back when he was like in his, in his 60s or 70s, okay? So <laughs> J-Mac says, okay, he says, I, I, he says, I don't know how you feel about discouragement. He said, but I, I get discouraged. 
And I was actually encouraged. Whenever I hear guys like John MacArthur say they struggle at times with discouragement, I always feel encouraged by that because I'm like, okay, good. Uh, well, I'm not the only one who struggles with this. So he says, okay, he says, I, I, I'm, done with a, I'm done with a day of, uh, of sermon preparation. And I look at my calendar and I go, oh no, I forgot I was, I'm supposed to go speak at this church tonight. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, you know, I don't know how many, half an hour, 45 minutes away. Oh man, I don't, I don't want to do that. I want to just go home and relax tonight. So I get home and I tell my wife, he's, he's, he's like, okay, I got to go to, the, oh, she's like, oh no, I didn't know you had to do that. He's like, yeah. He's like, why don't you just give me a shove out the door. I don't, even, I, I don't even want to go. Just shove me out the door. So he goes out the door. He goes, I'm going I'm to go get something at a taco place on the way there. So he goes and gets his dinner at the taco place. He heads out there. He's driving a long time to get there. And he says on the way there, his heart is not really into things as much as he would like it to be. And he says he gets up to speak. And he said he speaks. He said, I never really even got generated. I never really got going as I was preaching. I felt sort of dry as I spoke. He says, then, then the message ends. Multiple people have given their lives to Christ in this message. One person comes up to him and says that their life had been transformed by the truth of what was in the message. And he says he gets back in his car, turns the radio off, and he says, I go back home rejoicing and worshiping. He said, the drive takes about five minutes on the way back. I get back home and I go share the victories with my wife and we celebrate together. But how often is that true in life? We feel so often, what's the use? What's the point? Oh, why am I going to go do this? This is so hard. It's so unrewarding. And then, you know, these moments, unexpectedly, suddenly, a person you've been meeting with shares that something's changed. They're starting to understand the gospel better. And you are, you can't believe it. You can't, you're like, wait, you're starting to understand the gospel better. This person's not a Christian. And now they're talking, about, no, no, I think, I think I've actually come to know the Lord. I mean, everything's changing now. The Bible is starting to make sense to me. And Christ seems to be alive. And he seems, His glory seems to be striking into my heart. And you go, you're in disbelief. And you go home that day and you can't handle the joy. You can't, you can't handle how excited you are at, at this fruit that you're seeing. So listen, if you're feeling sometimes in life like, where, where is the fruit in all this? What's the point in some of this? I've been trying so hard and there's so little happening. I want you to know so often the Lord will give us the gift of unexpected fruit in unexpected times. And Paul has the leader of the synagogue, the synagogue trying to get him booted out. The leader of the synagogue is converted with his whole family, and Paul has the encouragement of that. So I just want to say, as I, as I wrap up here, the Lord Jesus loves to encourage weary saints. He delights to do it. I mentioned Dana Ortland's book, Matthew 11. Jesus, it's the only time in the Gospels where Jesus opens up His heart and says, here's what's in my heart. I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your soul in me. So come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The Lord Jesus delights, loves, is thrilled to give strength to the weary to comfort those who are brokenhearted. He loves to draw near those people, and He loves to refresh them with new living water for our parched hearts and souls. Let's bow our heads. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want or lack anything I need. He makes me lie down beside uh, still waters. He feeds me with green pastures. He restores my soul. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. God, I thank you that this is true, that you are encouraging to us when we are discouraged. You like to raise up the drooping arms and to strengthen weak knees, as the author of Hebrews says. You, you come near us, God. You are sympathetic 
and faithful high priest, Lord Jesus. You have been tempted at all points like as we are yet without sin. And you know just what we need, just when we need to hear it. And God, I pray that you would use your word, these people, this community, even this meal in just a few minutes, this time of singing in just a moment, use it, God, to strengthen drooping arms and weak knees. August is an exhausting month. It is, it is an exhausting month for, for virtually all of us. And God, I pray that you would allow the waters of life to begin to trickle back uh, into the fountain, that we would begin to drink deeply of your grace and goodness and kindness and nearness. And I thank you that you're a God that doesn't spare us of challenges. You don't spare us of difficulties and pain and trials and tribulations, but you always promise to be with us in them all. You promise to be near the brokenhearted and with those who are crushed in spirit. So please encourage us, even by these truths we're about to sing. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.